Turn to Numbers, chapter 23. Numbers, chapter 23. We pick up at the end there. Sorry, there was a little abrupt thing there because we usually have the music playing. Oh, okay. That will have a reverse effect. You will not be coming in to the sanctuary. All right, ready to pray? All right. Heavenly Father, now we like to always bow before we consider and reflect upon your living word. You are the author of this word, and we receive it as such, the living word of God. Now we open our hearts and ask that you would have your way. May we yield to your will in Christ's name. Amen. In 1981, some of you will recall a rather famous incident. President Reagan leaving Washington Hilton Hotel with three others were shot and wounded by John Hinckley Jr. Quite an impact on many people, but especially on his wife, Nancy. She became very concerned and fearful for her husband's safety after the assassination attempt. Mrs. Reagan realized, rightly so, that she was outgunned. Thousands of faces in every crowd, hundreds of crazies out there, political enemies of all kinds everywhere. How on earth is she going to keep her husband safe with hundreds of public appearances to do. Uh, There's only so much the Secret Service can do. Where could she turn? Well, she concluded to fight this battle on a higher level. Instead of conventional tactics to up his security, she went for spiritual ones. She went above and beyond the physical to the veil of the invisible. Here's a quote, and why don't we show the little visual that I have. All right, let me give you a quote from an article about the life of Nancy Reagan. Nancy states in her memoirs, I felt panicky every time Ronnie left the White House following the assassination attempt. And... It made her concern to know that her husband's schedule, she was concerned about her husband's schedule, the events he would be attending and with whom she wanted to know all of that. Eventually, this protectiveness led her to consulting an astrologer, Joan Quigley, who offered insight on which days were, quote, good, quote, neutral, or should be avoided, which influenced her husband's White House schedule. Days were color-coded according to the astrologer's advice to discern precisely which days and times would be optimal for the president's safety and success. Even now, in recent years, when questioned about what most people would consider an embarrassing thing, Ronald Reagan, a proclaimed, self-proclaimed Christian, said that he was embarrassed by this. Um, now, she, she made the comment, 
well, you know, I'm not embarrassed, you did realize that there were no further attempts on his life after I consulted the astrologer. So there's no way she's thinking to be in every crowd, to know every face, thanks for that, to screen everyone, you know, within a 50-yard radius of her husband. She needs a leg up on these would-be assassins. So she seeks out a soothsayer, a fortune teller, with the power to know the future. Now, soothsayers or sorcerers are akin to astrologers. You'll know that astrologers read tarot cards, and um, it really comes under the same heading as fortune-telling, psychic, sorcery, astrology. These are all kinds of flavors of the same ice cream, and uh, that is called the occult. Now, it has something much in common with our key character tonight, King of Moab. That's exactly what happened to him. He, as you remember, for context's sake, uh, Israel is coming toward Moab. There's a teeming throng barreling over the hills and calling on a name of a god they've never heard. And uh, Israel is 2-0, and oh, you see, and Moab is free. The king is totally panicking, you see. And so with that nauseated dread, which we read about, instead of making peace or going to the highest power of all, this Yahweh, instead of doing that, he wants to resist and fight and find another way. He wants to uh, consort with an astrologer of sorts, uh, this man named Balaam. An internationally known sorcerer for hire, Balaam is famous for having godlike powers. He has powers. He says, uh, I want you to cast a spell over these people. I want you to curse them so I can beat them. Now, it's just amazing to me that people, I'm sorry, but like uh, Nancy Reagan, who have enough faith to understand there is a spiritual reality and, and believe in, in that reality enough to color code uh, her husband's agenda and schedule. But to trust in the stars and not the one who created the stars, it's just an amazing little gap with spiritual new age kind of people who believe in the occult but don't want to go all the way to the top. They, they have enough faith to believe that there's uh, spiritual activity in this very room, but they don't want to bow their hearts and their knees to a Lord who will hold them morally accountable. You know, let's use the powers out there and acknowledge them for our own benefits, but uh, God forbid that we actually bow the knee and call him Lord. You see, that's where the disconnect is, I think, is bowing uh, in, a, in a personal way, where you lose autonomy, meaning autonomy, meaning the right to rule your own life. That's the problem. That's what keeps people away. We're willing to have all kinds of spiritual realities, except if I'm going to have to say Lord and lose my own power to control my own life. And so, as we've been seeing, uh, Balaam, this false prophet, sorcerer for hire, you know, he's a spiritual counterfeit. 
And he's a spiritual chameleon like these people. You know, he uses Yahweh's name, the Lord, my God. And he fakes this intimacy and this knowledge of God. He's kind of, like I said, a chameleon. You know, here's how I picture that coming coming across. This king, you know, has big resources and money. And he wants to go and he says, I'm going to make it really worth your while. You come and, and do your thing, right? And so... The, he says to him, now this, these are the Hebrews, and they, they call on this God named Yahweh. And he's going to say, you kidding me? Let me check in with Yahweh, the Lord my God. You know, so he just is pretending to be a believer in the Lord. Now Balaam inquires, as you recall, and God answers. And though God tells this sorcerer, Ixnay, no way, do not go with them. You cannot uh, curse Israel because they are blessed by me. He keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually God says, go ahead. And he opposes him. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed and without remedy. It's a dangerous thing to keep pushing your will against a God who's saying no. Now, it's a lose-lose situation for our sorcerer and the king seeking Israel's demise. And God is going to kind of reveal Balaam's foolishness and humble him. And the, the Bible says that over and over again, God opposes the proud. And he, he brings uh, humility to people who uh, oppose him. And so he's going to show the whole world what a donkey Balaam really can be. And I guess there was a small pun intended there, but it was really small. So small, I could barely see it. (laughs) Psalm 18, verse 26, that I've been quoting a lot to you. To the pure, you show yourself pure, but to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. So the Lord is playing Balaam's game and Balak, the king's game. And he's going to glorify himself through these men, even though that they are against him. He's going to use them. For his glory. So, bringing you up to the verses for tonight. Uh, now, the king, the Balaam, the sorcerer, has gone to Moab to the king's place. He's brought him up on two different hills because it didn't go well the first time. And so, Balaam is still going to try to curse him, uh, curse these people, and follow uh, what the king wants because he's interested in the paycheck that comes at the end. Uh, We've seen already twice now the bloody pagan sacrifice starts and Balaam goes into his seance-like mode. His eyes roll back maybe and he gets a little mystical jolt and then maybe he has a little prelude in tongues even, you know. And then he opens his mouth and the king is waiting. Oh, here it comes. I'm going to bless all those locusts coming over and they think they're going to bowl over us. Well, no. Go ahead and do it. And he opens his mouth. He raises his hands. And out comes blessing. And so this guy's getting mad, madder and madder. Um, last week we saw there were two oracles, meaning two little speeches that he gives. He, he, the oracle number one, here the summation is this. These people are distinct, and that distinction is tied to their God, and there's nothing that's going to stop them or him. That was really oracle number one. With a P.S., I wish I could be like them. Now, that's amazing because he says, curse these 
creatures. And he says, not only can't I curse them, I'm going to bless them, but I wish I could end up like one of them. If only I could. And then we, we talked about that last week. People want to die right with God, but they don't want to live with him. He knows exactly what to do to make peace with God, and he won't do it. But he wants to finish well, but he won't do what it takes to make sure that when it does, when he does, come, when it does come time for him to die, that he dies with the peace of God. The king says to him, what kind of shenanigans are you trying to pull here? I've hired you to put a whammy on these people, and all you can do is sing their praises. Oracle number one. Oracle number two, as we saw last week, the summation of it was, listen, their God isn't like man. He's not like us. He's not like any of the other gods. This God keeps his word. He has the power to carry out what he says to keep his promises. We can't bargain with this one. He is their strength, and his word is true, and they're going to prevail. And then the king says one of my favorite lines. He says, you know what? If you can't say something bad, don't say anything at all, (laughs) which is kind of a play on what we usually say, the opposite. He really does. He says, "You you know, at least if you can't curse them, could you not? Bless them. So this guy is saying, okay, now it's time. He's had two strikes. He says, maybe it's the reception. You know, instead of saying, can you hear me now? He's going to say, can you curse them now? You know, so he's going to move him now to another pagan shrine on another hill. Attempt number three. And we pick up now at verse 27. Then Balak, the king, said to the prophet Balaam, Come, let me take you to another place. (laughs) Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. Balak, the king, took the prophet, soothsayer, Balaam, to the top of Peor. Peor is famous for a very wicked place, offered uh, sacrifices to a very monster. God, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam says, build me seven altars again and prepare seven bulls again and seven rams for me. I'm adding the again because for context. Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he didn't resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke this message. So here's oracle number three. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, another word for Israel. Your your dwelling place is Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. 
God brought them up out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed. And those who curse you be cursed. Well, wow. How much worse can it get for this guy? The more the king tries to come against God's people, Israel, the greater the glory of the blessing. Now, here, oracle number three, let's kind of look through it. The first thing I see is the king, like all unbelievers, just doesn't get it. And God will use even his enemies to glorify him. You know, you see that a lot in the scriptures. And we're in Luke 23 on Sunday mornings with the crucifixion of our Lord. God is using Pilate, a very wicked man. God is using the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Wicked, godless men. Herod, Judas, all these people are playing into God's hands. They have free will, but God is sovereign. And I like how Paul says in Romans chapter 9 about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who enslaved the Jews prior to God just busting them out. And he says, I, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth through you. You see, Pharaoh's not a believer, but God is sovereign. And God will use even unbelievers in tragic circumstances and evil. He will take that and he will use it for good. And we see that happening here. Here's a false prophet, a sorcerer, a a fortune teller, a godless pagan Gentile. And what? God is putting the word of God in this guy's mouth. He's opening it to curse Israel, and out comes the word of God, a blessing. I love Psalm 2 where it says just how futile it is for people to be against God. That's crazy. I, t- I tell you this stop sign story all the time in Sebastopol. Somebody spray-painted underneath the stop of a stop sign. It says God under the stop. And so you see, stop God. And I just, people really think you can. They really do. I mean, why else would you say that? Let's stop God. It's just really not going to happen. So Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. This kid, or whoever did that in Sebastopol, is doing nothing new. 1,000 years before um, Jesus appears in Bethlehem, this psalm is saying, why do people do that? Why do they shake their fists and say, we're going to stop God and his will and come against and burn the Bibles? It's just not going to work. And uh, yet they do it. And we're seeing it happen, and God would just say, fine. I I will use you one way or the other. You will glorify me either way, wittingly or unwittingly. Now let's look at the strike three a little bit closer. So even after two strikes, the king is persisting, and I think I know why. Because, I I mean, do you ask questions like that when you read the Bible? Uh, uh, It's like God is speaking through this guy. He's got his answer, yet he's going to, 
pursue it again. Why? And I think it's because, like a lot of unbelievers, this king hates to lose. He's got a lot invested here. Balaam asked him again for elaborate, expensive altars and sacrificial animals, where at 21 bulls and rams, it's been expensive. Um, the envoys of delegation that's gone back and forth, like I mentioned last week, the fees for divination, he's promised them a lot of money. This has gone on months now because those envoys went back and forth internationally. There's time, there's money, there's his ego, there's investment. And so when you ask the question, why are you still fighting against what's obviously not God's will? Why are you doing this? It's because he has so much invested already. It's hard. I mean, can you imagine? I I guess. I mean, I don't gamble. I I never have had a problem gambling. I, I don't. But I can imagine somebody sitting at a table losing $1,000 and finding it very difficult to get up and stop because you've got $1,000 out there and it could be the next roll. I mean, the next time, let's just try it one more time on a different mountaintop. Let's make it work this time because maybe this time I won't be out all of that investment. You see? So his pride and his ego is laying in bed having chemotherapy eight years ago. And I'm fine now. I'm totally cured. And I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was on the fifth floor up at UCSF getting my chemo, which I had for about six months. And I was just a loose cannon, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, that means you just say you're just no holds barred. You just... And there, uh, because I was on drugs, too. That, I mean, it just made me a little more bold than I already am. And so there's a guy laying there, dying next to me, having his chemo. And I said to him, you know, I'm talking to him about the Lord. And he said, look, I've lived my whole life invested in evolution and in this. And I've raised my children to believe there's no God. And I and I've have an unbelieving wife, and everybody knows I'm an unbeliever. I've spent years and years and years saying there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. I've, I have my own philosophies. I have poured time and energy into this way of life. And you think just at the end, I'm supposed to just say, "Oh Jesus, I'm so sorry." And I say, "Yes, that's exactly right." That's exactly right. He said, what kind of hypocrite got red in the face? What kind of hypocrite would I be? And I said, sir, not a hypocrite. You'd be wise. That is wisdom to make a U-turn when you see a cliff. You see a cliff, you make a U-turn. Nobody would say, well, you've invested in this road trip. You know, you need to drive right off that, buddy. You know, come on, man alive. Sir, you need to call it out off with this woman before you get married to a non-Christian. She hates God. You're a Christian. She believes in all kinds of crazy things. But I've been with her so long. My heart's entwined. My life's invested. Stay clear 
of the wrong road. Because once you're on the wrong road, you're making investments. And it gets harder and harder and harder and harder to get off that road that leads to destruction. This is why we look at this and we laugh. We don't get it. What are you doing? He's going, I've got a lot on the line here, folks. Maybe one more time. And so he tries it. Doesn't work again. It's getting worse, as we used to say as kids, worser and worser. <laughs> so, notice the prophet's insight. Now, let's take a look at what he says here. Here's the paraphrase. When Balaam figures out God is bent on blessing Israel, he foregoes his usual th- theatrics. Instead, he turns and just looks at Israel, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. So, in other words, the oracle went in two, he went into his whole theatrical thing. The eyes rolling back and everything. Now, number three, he gets it. He goes, you know, he's starting to do his thing. He goes, nah. You know, <laughs> it just stops. He goes over, he looks at the, the people and he sees the tents and the colored banners that we studied in the early chapters of Numbers and the, how they were taught to march and the formation. Everything just beautiful. And he sees that, and the Spirit of God falls on him. And I want you to notice also that seeing is not necessarily believing. The Pharisees were wowed and just said, you know how he does that? He does it by demon power because he's Beelzebub, the lord of the demons. You see, just because someone sees and gets it, he gets it. He's saying, look, uh, here's his paraphrase. Here we go again, and this time I can really see what's going on. I hear God speaking, and I see a vision from the Almighty. I'm wowed, and my, wa- and my eyes are wide open. We are quick to just say, see, he's a believer. No, he gets it, but he's not a man of faith. A lot of people see and understand, but you're not saved by seeing and understanding. You're saved by Trusting and repenting. Interesting to me, when Job gets a revelation of the Spirit of God and his presence, listen to this in Job 42. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is kind of a pattern for those in the Bible who get a real close glimpse of the Holy God. It reveals our unrighteousness. But you don't hear that with him. Hey, I'm really wild. There's no repentance. There's no faith. There's no saving faith. He gets, he gets it. He sees. He says, he's like, wow, my eyes have been open. Imagine that. That's where it ends. And then he keeps going to try to do the wrong thing. You see? Watch out for that. Peter in Luke chapter 5, he puts it all together. You know, he realizes he's out on the boat. They fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus says, hey, try it my way. Try it on the other side. And he's rolling his eyes like, oh, come on. You're a good, you were a carpenter. You're a very good rabbi. But leave the fishing to us, you know. But just because you say so, I'm going to throw the net on the other side. Well, when that all clicks for him, he gets it. This is no ordinary man. And he falls down and he says, Lord, I am a wicked person. Go away from me. Isaiah has a vision in Isaiah 6. 
of the Lord high and lifted up. And he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, you see. But this guy gets it. He has a vision, but he's not touched here. He's just touched here. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge won't save you. A lot of people know a lot of stuff about God, and they're going straight. How do you say that without sounding so harsh? <laughs> they're going, they're going to perish. All right? How about that? Three-part in this oracle for note-takers. Real fast. Number one, uh, the blessings of it. This is what this, I'm summing up what you just read. The blessing of Israel will be demonstrated in the land, verses 5 through 7. One, the country will be beautiful. Two, the land will be productive. Three, the natural resources will be abundant. And four, their king will be powerful. In Isaiah 35, it says that when Christ returns and restores things, that Israel will be like the Garden of Eden. The second part of the oracle that we just read The blessings of Israel are tied to their God, verse 8. One, Israel's God is her rescuer. Two, Israel's God is her protector. Three, Israel's God makes her victorious. And lastly, the blessings cannot be changed, verse 9. One, Israel's strength is like the king of the jungle, the sovereign grand lion. Two, Israel's blessing is guaranteed by the promises of God. So that's the summation of what he just told him. And he's thinking, boy, this really can't get any worse. And so the prophet says to him, listen, boss, I got seven words this time to give to you. Beauty, abundance, security, provision, dominance, and contentment. You asked me to give you my best shot at these people. Take those seven words because that's their destiny. Because not because of anything they have done. You see, the world looks at Israel or to, to the church and says, how can God reward that kind of behavior? Well, Israel had just confessed their sins. He put a bronze serpent on a pole and said, look, whoever looks will live. Their sins have been atoned for. So God finds no fault in those he's already covered, you see? And so that is not an encouragement to sin or to fall short, but it's the reason why God could say there's no cursing, there's no condemnation that's going to stick to these people because their sins are paid for. It's not that they're perfect people, they're just paid for people. Therefore, they cannot be damned, they cannot be cursed. I cannot find any fault with them because they have been cleansed of their faults. And that has fallen onto this, in the Old Testament scenario, the serpent on the pole. In the New Testament, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the cross. That is why nobody can condemn us because Christ has forgiven us. And uh, that's the secret to our success. And then he says, but wait, there's more. By the way, those who bless them will be blessed, and those who curse them will, like you, will be cursed. Well, you know what? There's nothing mystical about that. It's just kind of a common sense, logical consequence, I think. Listen, if people hate God's people whom God loves, then they're never going to find peace 
with God. So if you hate the church and you hate Christians, you will be cursed, not because there's something mystical about hating Christians. It's because it tells you where your heart is. God loves Christians because he died for them and calls them his own blood-bought children. Therefore, if somebody says, I hate them, well, or I, I curse them, oh, you're, not, you're just showing your attitude toward God, and that can never be blessed. It would be like somebody coming to me and saying, you know what I did today? I spit in your kid's face. Can I borrow 100 bucks? I despise your kids. I saw them walking today. I put my foot out. I hope to, woo, I put my foot out, and I hope to trip them up just like that. Can you do me a favor? Do you see what I'm saying? Those who curse you will be cursed. Nothing magical or mysterious, but because you're <laughs> showing where your heart's at with enmity against God, enmity, separation, opposition. All right, so he's not a happy camper. So here, picking up 10 through 14. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave it once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. <laughs> so pretty straightforward. I have a paraphrase. All right. The king, the king explodes in fierce anger and rage and pounds his fist into his open hand. I hired you to do a job to curse these nasty creatures, but you've blessed them three times. Get the heck out of my sight. I was going to make you filthy rich, but your new friend Yahweh has ruined that for you. You're not getting a single dime. Now, Balaam does what all unbelievers do. They make excuses and blame God. Verse 12, Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you, tell the messengers you sent me? Sorry, did I not tell the messengers you sent me, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord, and I must say only what the Lord says. So he's saying, look, I told you so, but you know what? He was always trying to manipulate God, and he was hanging in there himself for the good paycheck at the end. So even though he was doing the wrong thing, he's going to blame the Lord and for his bad job performance all the time hoping for that big payoff. Now, now the sorcerer is stung. He's upset. And this gets to my personal favorite part of the story. It's just a little thing, but I really find it funny. He's, he's mad. He's just been told, you're fired. Go home. I'm not paying you for any of this. And he's realizing, you know, that the king's going to put a stop payment on the check. And, and not only that, but he sees this whole thing as a waste of time. And he, and he, and he can remember the Lord saying, go ahead. See if this is going to get you anywhere. Now, after all of this, he's got to go home empty-handed, blessing Israel. So he's ticked at this guy. And he says, now I'm going back to my people. But come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So he's going to say, look, 
You paid me for three, I'm going to throw in the fourth one for free. <laughs> I got a bargain for you. You know, you fire me? Fine. I got just one thing to say. And he puts up his hands, and the Spirit of God falls on him. And he says, you think this was, these first three were bad? Check this one out. And he's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to describe this king he's mentioned in Oracle 3. This king is greater than Agag. Oh, now he's going to say, now he's going to preach the gospel of Jesus to him. All right? So, verses 15 and 16, he repeats the verses on how God has opened his eyes. And then he goes in for the kill. Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, capital H, but not near. It'll be about 1,300 years. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. I almost said moron. I'm sorry. (laughs) The skulls of the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, you're going to fire me. I'm going home fine. But just let me add a little bit salt to your wound. I see somebody coming that's going to be not only the king of their people, but from those nasty creatures that you hate over the next hill, from one of them is going to come a ruler of the universe. He will be the God-man, essentially. The star speaks of, Jesus is called the star, the glory of God, the scepter, his right to rule. It's very, very interesting is that the wise men come from the east where this is going on. And they're following a star. And they ask, where is born the king of the Jews? Now, where would they get that? Well, they would get this from ancient writings that they had. And Daniel, the prophet, gives them dates and times. They follow a star. And they bow to the king with the scepter. Oh, my gosh. It's all there. It's just all right there. So this future ruler, let me just say this. To somebody who's checking out Christianity here tonight, or you're new to the faith, and you hear verses like that, that this coming ruler is going to crush the skulls of his enemy. Let me assure you that Jesus' second coming speaks of the Messiah in those kinds of terms. Blazing fire. Jesus himself said, when I come back, I will fall upon people and crush them. In Genesis chapter 3, God says, I will raise up from a woman's womb a conqueror, and he's speaking to the devil in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord says, who will crush your head. He will crush the devil's skull and all the devil's people. Now, interesting word used there, skull. Because Jesus will only crush the skulls of evildoers who have rejected what he did at Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. So, in other words, Jesus will only destroy those who 
wished to be destroyed because he's gone to the cross and allowed God to, I'm sorry, crush his skull. Golgotha means skull. Calvary, Latin for skull. So the Lord is just not out to vindictively crush people. He crushes himself so that nobody will be crushed. But if you know and see and persist and want to go against God, he says, well, then those people outside of the blessing of God will be destroyed. That's the whole point, is that he's coming back. He's a, Lord, he's a refuge, the Lord is, to his people. Merciful. Look at that cross. Then you'll know. You don't take a verse like that and say, I can't love a God like that. Well, look at the cross of Jesus who is battered beyond recognition saying, I'm doing this so that whosoever will believe in me should not perish, be crushed, but have everlasting life. You can believe in a God like that because that's who he is. And so just closing, you know, this king that he sees, you know, Pilate nails a sign over Jesus' cross that says the king of the Jews. And the Jews are really upset by that. And in John 19, they send a message to Pilate that says, hey, take that sign down and write on it, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, go away. (laughs) What I wrote, what I've written, I've written. So it said in three languages, Aramaic, Greek and Latin. Sorry. Nice try. Don't mess with me, Maria. (laughs) Yeah, three languages like that. Very good. So all the world will know. But look at this, a bloodied king. You can't even recognize him as a man. King, and he is. But let me read to you the second time. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose riders call faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head many crowns, the star, the glory. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's this false medium this astrologer, this witch doctor, and God gives him a vision of this king coming. It doesn't do anything to change his destiny. It says he went to his place. He went home. The other guy went on his own way. They're both kind of cues to tell you that they, they both were unrepentant. The only other place where it says in the King James is a better translation. It says that Balaam went to his place. The only other place that's ever mentioned that a man goes to his place is Judas. So there's a little tie there. And then the king, he goes on his, and the NIV has it better here, his own way. 
he takes his own way, which is symbolic of all those who harden their heart against the Lord. But just an amazing thing that God would give a guy like Balaam a vision of the second coming of Jesus Christ, essentially. He's saying, look, on my way out, I just want to let you know, these people are really special, and the conquering king of the world and the universe is going to come through one of their virgin wombs, really. It's an amazing thing. Here's the reflection now. Oh, the, the, the end verses there are just really saying the Amalekites don't stand a chance. The Kenites don't have a chance either. One nation will supplant the other nation, but Israel's going to be blessed. And then they go home. All right, here's the reflection. Four of them. Four little sentences kind of wrap up our study with Balaam. Number one, when God has you backed against the wall, it's better to surrender and get right with him rather than resist him and fight with him. Amen? I think that's smart. Number two, when the Lord says no in no uncertain terms, it's the height of foolishness and a dangerous thing indeed to ignore him and pursue your own course anyway. Number three, sometimes when people who are hell-bent on defying God and doing the wrong thing, God gives them what they want to correct them or to punish them. And number four, which really wraps up all the oracles, God's chosen nation and God's chosen people in Christ, believers, are distinct from all other people For they alone have the blessing of God, for he is their father alone. It's a little caveat. God's created everybody. Not everybody are his children, because you have to be adopted in through faith in Jesus Christ. God is not the father of us all. He told the Pharisees, I know who your father is. There are a couple fathers out there. Everybody is a creation of God. Not everybody's a child of God. And the child of God is the one who has the distinction. They cannot be cursed. They will never die. They will never be damned. God will never hold anything against them. But they will always be blessed. They are destined for this ultimate victory because of their connection to the undefeatable God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that encourages us. Help us to... Have faith in your promises regarding our blessedness. That you've got our backs. You are working all things for our good. You're providing peace and contentment and security unto eternal life. That's the gospel. That we're safe with you and safe with you forever. Just help us stay on the straight and narrow path and to put to look at what uh, Balaam and Balak did and to avoid their error and their way and their way of thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. Father God, help us to, to be encouraged by the way that you love your people and have destined them to overcome. And uh, I don't know about everybody, but I'm always seeing my sin and and my falling short, and I get discouraged so easily. But I forget 
that I'm in Christ. We're in Christ. Our sins are washed away and we've been destined for great things. Help us to set our minds on those truths, Lord, and repent quickly and thoroughly and walk with you and stay close to you and keep in mind our destiny and how secure we are in Christ. For all of that you said about your people Israel is true and fulfilled in us as well. So thank you, Father God. We look forward to one day seeing you face to face. May we live lives that make us ready for that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We will see you Sunday, Lord willing.